Hello and welcome to the Progress Series, where we discuss scientific principles for optimizing human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by SNC coach and head of athlete performance and development at Xavier College in Melbourne, Nathan Heaney, also known as the conditioning consultant on social media. Now, more people are becoming familiar with training programs involving training zones. You might have heard of uh, 80-20 running, where you do 80% of your runs in the easy domain and 20% of your run in the hard, more intense domain. But is it as easy as keep your easy runs easy and your hard runs hard? Like, what defines these training zones? Well, in this episode, Nathan and I discuss how we can use heart rate data to define these training zones. What's the difference between a five-zone model and a three-zone model? And how we could potentially use RPE to guide our training in each of these zones. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, and head to our website, theprogresstheory.com. Check out all of our other episodes. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors, because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of The Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the progress theory or my personal Instagram account at DrPhilPrice or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. Here is Nathan Heaney. Nathan, how are we? I'm good, Phil. Thanks for the invite and thanks for uh, thanks for having me on your Progress Theory podcast. No problem. 
I've been looking forward to this because training intensity distribution is a topic that I think has gained a lot of popularity. People are becoming more aware of, you know, make your hard runs hard and make your easy ones easy rather than just go out and see if you can run at like 90% each time. But uh, I still think it's a little bit of a gray area. People don't understand where those zones are. So, you know, I think it's great to have you on the show and really clarify those things up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly agree with you. I think it's it's a topic, I guess the overarching concept of training intensity distribution has probably been popularized by the fact that the concept of polarized training has become mm-hmm. much more commonly used, particularly endurance training circles. So I think by virtue of of that being more popular, I think uh, I think people have started to get a bit of an appreciation for, well, what is training intensity distribution and how do I use that to um, to polarize my training? Yeah, it's certainly been a, a really interesting topic and one that I've you know certainly been using a lot with my my athletes over the over the last few years. Mm. Before we delve into the topic, do you want to give a bit of an overview of yourself? Yeah, no problems. Um, so I guess uh, so. Based in um, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, I guess my background sort of stems from from like a high performance setting. So I um, studied at a university in Melbourne, and that was a sports science degree. I guess one thing for me, whilst I, w- I guess I was fortuitous enough, whilst I was undertaking the study to do an internship at the Victorian Institute of Sport. So it's probably similar to you guys have uh, state inst- or national institutes. So we have state institutes here. So it'd be a similar model where, where we service the Olympic athletes. And um, I was fortuitous enough to, uh, to be an intern there. Anyway, as it turned out, I ended up um, finishing my uni degree, finishing some further study, which, which focused specifically at uh, conditioning application, particularly aerobic conditioning application within a team sport setting. So the overarching aim for me was how do I make myself more employable because uh, jobs were few and far between and uh, it's a pretty competitive marketplace here as it would be in the UK too. The research pertains aerobic conditioning application in team sports settings. So whilst I was doing that, I I was fortunate enough to progress to part-time and then full-time employment. I ended up being at the VIS for about 10 years um, and then from there, I left and went to work at AFL Victoria and then the Adelaide Crows, which is a, a football team that um, compete in the Australian Football League. So I was there for three years um, and that was awesome. And I was the, the the role I served there was strength and conditioning coordinator. So I oversaw the strength training and running conditioning, of guess, uh, overarching conditioning component of the football club. And then more recently, I've the last two years, I have been at Xavier College as head of athlete performance and development. So that's a one of our big private schools here in Melbourne. So my role is primarily to provide strength and conditioning and sports science support through the broader department to our most aspirational sportsmen and our sporting teams. So yeah, it's been a bit of a, I guess, a slightly change intact, but um, certainly love the role. Like I still, it's a nice, um, nice blend of developmental servicing but really focusing on some of our high-end sports. So, yeah, that's kind of that's a I guess a quite a succinct yeah. um, overview. That's a really nice mixed experience. So you've gone from working with elite Olympic athletes to elite team athletes to the um, you know developmental athletes, and each one comes with certain criteria, don't they? They, you know, it's a really different experience with each one. Um, so, how did those different experiences 
lead to you developing these ideas around aerobic conditioning? Because I'm assuming the aerobic conditioning started when you were working with the Olympic athletes and something you've carried on through and um, yeah. really sort of uh, perfected over time. Yeah, great question. So absolutely, like when I was at the VIS, I vividly remember during my initial stages there, I was kind of looking at the conditioning being applied I was kind of thinking to myself, I, I, I thought there's got to be a slightly better way to do some of this stuff. Like I, I felt like it was a little bit subjective and it probably lacked a bit of precision. And, and I guess I've always been someone that's been a little bit more analytical with the way I approach things. So yeah, by virtue of that, I then went down the path of undertaking some of the study. As soon as I did that, I, I, I would say that year of study was probably my steepest learning curve from a like just from a pure literature standpoint so that was that was awesome and from there i guess i just started developing my interest so whether it was for for team sport athletes initially but then i started working with some more endurance athletes and then uh that opens up another avenue of of learning so i guess it's yeah kind of it definitely started when i was at the vis and then i guess as i got exposed to different athletes different populations different groups different settings the type of research you look at and the application just changes so, yeah, I guess then it morphs into something a little bit different to what you initially started investigating or applying. Have you found your, your methods that you've developed over time, uh, is it something that you could potentially use with all training groups or do you find the application becomes different with each training group that you work with? Yeah, I would say the overarching philosophy probably stays relatively consistent. But certainly the application of the philosophy, so the methods you're, you're implementing, they definitely change. So they are what I would say much more group specific. So there's so much context that underpins aerobic conditioning application. So a team sport group is that, that fundamentally is in a skill-based sport, the application of conditioning for them is so different to a triathlete or a middle distance runner. Like they're just chalk and cheese um, and there's just – much more, I guess it's just a much more complex environment to apply conditioning in because there's so many factors that you need to consider when you're prescribing conditioning in that setting. But not not to discount the complexity with endurance endurance sports, it's just mm. the complexity is different. Yeah. I feel like I've opened up a tangent with that question because I'm now thinking like, oh, do we go <laughs> yeah. towards the sort of like team sports, the sorry, intermittent type based sports like hockey, football, rugby. But I know that we are in this series focusing on developing strength and endurance simultaneously, more focused around, okay, could you yeah. combine powerlifting or weightlifting up with developing your ability within triathlon, for example? So I might stick down that route if that's okay. Yeah, no, that's um, next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Round two. We've already booked it. Could you start off with just giving an overview of what training intensity distribution is? And then we can uh, go from there, just in case anyone listening is not too familiar with the concept. Yeah, no problem. So, uh, training intensity distribution, it's the, the best way to think about it is the quantification of physical activity or exercise across a specific time period. So that can include your, your training, intensity, training intensity distribution for a single session or one week, one month, half a year, or a full annualized year. So it, it's, it's, that's kind of, I guess, how people look at it, like overarchingly. And the aim of the aim of training intensity distribution is to provide an overview of one's training intensity. So for example, how much high intensity work are they completing? How much moderate or threshold work are they completing? How much high intensity work are they completing over those specific time periods? So 
more often than not, it's done through the collection and quantification of heart rate data. So the main rationale for for heart rate being used is that it it, it enables multi-mode assessment. So imagine you work with a triathlete. So if you're trying to quantify their training, you're trying to do it across three disciplines. I know there is a little bit of complexity around quantification of training and, and monitoring heart rate in the pool, but now through the advent of different sensors, optical sensors, you, you can track heart rate a bit more accurately in the pool. So by virtue of using an optical sensor in the pool and then your traditional heart rate measurement on a bike or running, you can literally capture heart rate data across all three modes for the entire training day, training week, training month, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and I guess the other element that's worth noting is that it provides athletes, coaches, and practitioners alike uh, with information about the intricacies of their endurance training program. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to delve a bit deeper in some of the subsequent questions. And recently, I know I put it up on Instagram that I watched uh, an online lecture of yours, which really explained when you start to see people. Okay, let me reframe it as in, okay, you've got the intense, moderate, and easy. Yep. And people are going for an easy run, but it ends up being moderate, or yep. they go for a hard run but it ends up being moderate. So they've got a particular goal that they have to achieve, but they end yep. up missing that goal. And then the accumulation of that over time can lead to either stagnation or some kind of injury. But in this particular YouTube presentation that you gave, you really nicely described what a easy run that ended up being moderate looked like and also the same yeah. for the hard run. Do you want to give like a bit of an overview of that? Yep. And yeah, I'll yeah. also in the show notes put a link to that particular presentation of yours. Okay, no problem. So yeah, so the the easiest way to contextualize that is imagine everyone, a lot of your listeners probably run to heart rate or, or have run to heart rate before or exercised to heart rate. So imagine you had a specific threshold that was your easy or anaerobic, oh, sorry, aerobic threshold. So that's your, that basically demarcates easy from moderate. So for most people, uh, and it's again, it's not gold standard, but generally 80% heart rate max is that threshold. So imagine if you were going out to do a, an easy run and the prescription was to use 80% as your, your easy ceiling. So people that don't execute easy runs well, what they end up doing is they end up running, they'll start the run successfully and, and they'll, the heart rate will be below, heart rate, below 80% heart rate max. But what ordinarily happens for most people, and this is definitely relevant through the conditioning consultant side business where I'm working a lot, a lot with endurance athletes, they ordinarily just gradually creep up over the course of the the whole run. So heart rates just gradually trickling up, trickling up, and by the end of the run, they're not they're probably not far off ninety percent heart rate max. And by virtue of gradually seeing their heart rate trickle up, their average heart rate is smack bang in the moderate or threshold zone. So they end up accruing and accumulating lots of time in that threshold zone. So. What was supposed to be an easy run is definitely not an easy run at that point. There's a few different layers to this. I guess there's there's some really good papers, one by Craig Neal, who um, who looked at the impact of high-intensity work and threshold work on immunity and and suppression of, a, of immunity. And it definitely shows that hard runs and, and moderate runs have a pretty similar cost in terms of your immune response. So um, and that's also been backed up by some some work where where people are comparing impacts of those types of runs to your HIV. So 
I think that's that's probably a good example of where I guess a good example of where an easy run can go wrong. So, and, and I think that that lecture you referred to um, has a graphical context to it too. So you can really see where this particular athlete they were supposed to do an easy run. They ended up averaging like six or eight beats per minute higher than they were supposed to. The pace was much faster. So in the end, it was a really poorly executed easy run, which definitely has a cost associated with it, which when they try and do a, a hard run later on in the week, they probably can't do it as well because they haven't enabled their body to recover by virtue of banking that sort of easier intensity run. Yeah, always make sure that you're recovered for the hard sessions, isn't it? You know, if you've got key sessions during the week which are the most intense ones everything else has to be geared around making sure those intense ones are intense because if you then screw that up by going too intense in the other sessions then you're kind of just hitting this middle of the road for all of your training <laughs> um i'm yeah, sure i've absolutely, been yeah. that in the past oh and, it, and it's it's such a common issue like and i think for me like i hadn't worked with i guess not, not weekend warriors but sub elite athletes all that much uh, until the last couple of years, when I when I by virtue of starting the the side business, which is obviously how um, you found me, so I would say it is unbelievably relevant for them because more often than not, most people would I would say ninety percent of most people that I that I work with, their go to exercise mode or intensity is exactly what you described. It's just a moderate intensity that might trickle to a high intensity at the back end of the run as they manage a sprint finish to the line. So most people don't really have the discipline or the restraint or the patience to actually run easy enough. Like it, it's it's so counterintuitive, but it's actually really hard <laughs> to run easy. So it just requires a lot of a lot of those aforementioned qualities. And then in contrast, when you want when you set people hard sessions to do, most people don't have the intestinal fortitude to do that properly either. And what I mean by that is they don't actually lay it all out there and, and work hard enough to achieve it. So they end up converging most of their training in that middle zone. So it is a it's a it's certainly a, a different model and one that for some people, you know, it's completely unfamiliar and they've they've never trained that way before. But certainly I've had since applying it with the the you know a vast array of endurance athletes and team sport athletes via the the TCC side business and my and certainly I've pre- preceding that my I've been using similar models with high performance athletes it's one that's proven to be really effective from an adaptation standpoint and also robustness longevity all those types of things as well yeah what kind of I don't want to use the word excuses but what are the reasons that the, the weekend warriors that you've worked with end up going towards or converging towards that moderate intensity? Because in my head, I'm thinking, okay, people I've worked with in the past, usually it is our work caught up with me. So then I had less time to run. So I only did half of it. So to make the most of it, I then ran faster. So your easy run just ended up being more intense than it should have been. Or for the opposite of that, when it comes to the hard work, there's like, oh, work was really hard. I just ended up not working as hard in the session as I want. It's yeah. almost like external factors end up being, I don't want to say the excuse, but there might be a little bit towards that and not actually following the plan as much as they could do. Do you, do you find something similar in your athletes or the weekend warriors anyway? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think if I start with the easy runs first and, and people's inability to do them effectively, I think some of it comes down to a lack of knowledge and education. Like, they actually just don't know any better. So ordinarily for them, 
I think, again, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but here certainly physical activity is a bit of an issue more in like broader society. So for weekend warriors, they might think, well, anything I'm doing, like the harder I work, the better. Like, isn't that the best approach? But I guess when they start transitioning across to more goal-orientated endurance training, they then realize that that type of approach isn't sustainable because when you start banking 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 Ks a week or 300 Ks a week on the bike, when you start banking that type of training volume in, just doing moderate training all the time is not going to cut it because you are going to end up leading to, you know, you're going to leave yourself susceptible to injury, illness, overtraining, overreaching, all those types of things. Not, not to mention that that type of training results in high levels of training monotony. You know, people end up burning out. They go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sick of this training. I've got these niggles. I can't get rid of them. I haven't, I haven't improved. Mm-hmm. So oh, I'm going to give up, you know. So I think it, that I think by I think a bit of it is a lack of knowledge and education. I think also people it probably comes from maybe I think there's definitely a lack of discipline in it. So I think for some people, when you set them easy runs to do, for so long they've they've exercised thinking harder is better, harder is better. So when you tell them to run easier, they're like, What do you mean? Like I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. So it probably takes the complementary nature of the high intensity work for for the penny to drop. So when you actually show them the easy runs and they start to do them and they go, yeah, okay, I can see I'm starting to enjoy these. I start to feel the benefit. I feel like I can do them and not they don't come with a significant cost or impost on my freshness and wellness and all those types of things. But then when you complement it and juxtapose it with the high intensity work, that's when I think the penny drops and they go, geez, yeah, that like now I can see what you mean. I've never worked that hard before for a high intensity session. And then they're like, ah, okay, so maybe my ability to perform them is better now because I am fresher. So I think it's the combination of those two where people finally understand why you would approach your training in this manner. Because for most people, you know, they, they don't have the knowledge, the awareness, and they will cite excuses like you're alluding to. So time, you know, oh, I only had 30 minutes, so that's 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 all I could fit in. So I just went as hard as I could for 30 minutes. So all those things are, are the same factors that you that you um, referred to, Phil. But I think the overarching issue is I think people just do not know any better. I think that's that's probably the major issue. And hopefully through your podcast, and I guess part of it for me, like the reason I set up the side business, like I've always been not anti-social media, but like not that comfortable putting stuff out there. In, particularly in these types of forums. But I think it was just a, a realization that it, there, like conditioning application is so misapplied and misunderstood. So I was like, well, I do have what I perceive as a good body of knowledge. So it's probably a good thing to share to people that are interested. Mm. So hence, hence why I started it about, um, you know, roughly about two years ago. Yeah, definitely. I, the more we can get this out here, the better. And on top of developing people's base knowledge, you know, it's good appropriate coaching to lead that person for that realization of what they're doing is actually going to head them in the right direction. Recently, I, I've wanted to use, um, because I definitely see this, if I see on a Strava, and I'll see someone that I follow that has done, I don't know, a 15k run, and they go, yeah, yeah, it's my easy run. And I'll look at the speed and I think, well, that's quite a fast speed. But then you go for the average heart rate, and it's like 130. And that's when I get jealous. I don't get jealous of these super like, oh, you know, what's your 5K PB? I'm jealous of those that can run 20K at a decent speed that's maintained and keep their heart rate yeah. right down because I know that I can't do that. I mean, I'm 
95 kilos so that's probably gonna <laughs> affect my running difference. ability it makes a big difference but still it's you know i see that and i think okay maybe people need to stop thinking about the absolute you know high performance of someone's pb maybe you know their ability to perform this base work should be led towards something that oh you know i want that i want to be able to run at that speed at that low heart rate that's what i yeah. want my steady state to be but uh hopefully with more stuff like this and the you know the information you're putting out on your uh, instagram page is gonna make more people aware of all this so it's, i think it's great hopefully hopefully <laughs> What um, are the different intensity distributions? So we've talked a lot about polarized training. So I don't yeah. know, let's, let's use the whole 80-20 because that's gained quite a lot of popularity where 20% yep. of your work will be in that high intensity to domain and then the rest, the 80% will be in that low intensity domain. So if we're thinking of a three-zone model, um, yep. the 80% will be in zone one and then 20% will be in zone three. Obviously, you need to move between yep. <laughs> between those zones. So you're yeah, not going to yeah, have yeah. zero in zone yeah. two. But uh, th- yeah, that's the one that's popularized. Why is polarized training so popular? Is there like a strong evidence base to support it? Yeah, so yes, there is. So I guess the we'll start with the polarized TID model. So the reason that's become much more popular, and, it, and it's certainly fantastic that it has um, become a lot more popular and, and I guess a lot more a lot more commonly utilised with endurance athletes of all abilities is because there was a quite a bit of research done through I guess largely the Scandinavian countries whereby they looked at a whole heap of cross country skiing and, and winter sport endurance athlete case studies and the findings from those studies highlighted that a lot of these really successful athletes so we're talking Olympic gold medalists. They, when they looked at the, when they broke down and analysed their their actual their training data, they realised that by and large the vast majority of their training was spent in the low intensity domain. So, and then when you think about it, like it, it's it's pretty intuitive when you think about an endurance athlete that has to train 15, 18, 20, 25 hours a week. Like, there's only a limit as to how intense that exercise can be. Like, they're doing so much work. So. Through lots and lots of high-intensity work, they build up all those central adaptations. And then the other thing that they really found was when they had, by virtue of doing that, they built up a really strong aerobic base, for want of a better term. Then when they flicked a switch and and the periodization required them to do some high-intensity work, they were able to do that really, really effectively. So that high-intensity work then then ended up underpinning a lot of their aerobic adaptation so you know they were the big drivers for improvements in vo2 max and and shifting up those aerobic and anaerobic thresholds that that we want to get and that's where we see a lot of our big improvements so the polarized training model i guess you know it's been absolutely popularized because it does stem from a really strong scientific base on not only elite endurance athletes but it's also been investigated for sub-elite endurance athletes as well and there's there's a fantastic study which looked at Ironman triathlon and um, my Instagram has covered this particular study by Munoz and basically they showed that we, if there's going to be one event which required people to use a threshold model and we'll, we'll cover that one shortly so the threshold is the most common model so that's the one where you spend all your time in that moderate or zone two essentially if the, the, that whole event is basically spent in the threshold zone so Sports specificity or event specificity would require you to to train in zone two, but counterintuitively, their their research showed that athletes that spent more time in zone one 
and less in zone two performed better in Ironman triathlons. So it just shows you the power of spending more time in zone one. So that's why I think more and more people are spending or investing time in in the polarized model. And then that does require you to to spend a bit more time in, in that zone three zone to make that polarized training work. Now, you have already alluded to one potential issue with the polarized model. So when you try and practically apply it in the field, it's pretty hard to get your heart rate from zone one to zone three with not spending any time in zone two. So that whole the whole adage of 80-20 is really hard to apply practically. So for me, there's another model called the pyramidal model. And again, like I, I sort of can try and draw it for you, but essentially <laughs> it's lots of time in zone one, lots of time in zone one, and then it gradually trickles down. So there's less time in zone two and then less time in zone three. The reason I like that model and the reason I think it's really effective is because it still emphasizes zone one time. So there's still a massive emphasis on making your easy sessions easy. But what it does do is it provides most athletes with a bit of latitude around their heart, their high intensity work. So for a whole host of different factors, sometimes when you try and do your high intensity work, you might be trying as hard as you can, nailing your paces, but for whatever reason, heart rate is a bit suppressed. When you do that, you end up spending a lot of time in zone two. You might spend a bit of time in zone three, but you're spending the vast majority of your session in zone two. That's not bad per se. That's, you know, for whatever reason, fatigue, freshness, it was really cold compared to the, the, the warmer conditions when you did the other session the previous week. All of those things have an impact on heart rate response. So I think that pyramidal model is probably more practically applicable in the field. When you're, when, you're, when you're dealing with all those environmental conditions and, and all of life stresses. So I think that's a great model to use and that's one I personally like to implement. And it's not too dissimilar to the polarized model. It is just accounting for a bit more flexibility. It's probably allowing for a bit more flexibility in that zone three execution. What we don't want to see is easy time being redistributed, redistributed to that moderate zone. We definitely don't want that when we do the pyramidal model. And then the last one I'll touch on is the most popular model, um, and it's it's a negative that it's the most popular, is the threshold model. And that's the model where essentially like a real bell-shaped curve, all of the, the vast majority of the training time is spent in that zone two or that middle zone. And that leads to a whole host of different issues. Susceptibility to illness, some of them we've already covered in the, in, in the early phases of the podcast, but susceptibility to illness, injury, injury risk, lack of progress, so stagnation, plateauing, training monotony, and I guess all, ultimately too, that, that all of those lead to a discouragement of exercise because people get a bit frustrated with, with that type of training. Do you find that you might move from one model to another depending on the development of the athlete or the time of year? So for example, I actually posted something yesterday regarding the three-zone model on my Instagram, and I had quite an interesting question by someone and they talked about how they're an older athlete and they struggle sometimes with the high intensity stuff so in my head I was like well you don't because he was like well how can I achieve the 80-20 split if I'm really struggling with the volume of the high intensity stuff and in my head I'm thinking okay you know maybe you would start off with just having easy runs utilize as a way of getting your bounce back developing the tissue qualities to enable you to sort of maintain a certain running stride and then once you've done that we can you would maybe implement or slowly add more intense stuff more as like 
physical i'd say it more as like weight training but you're not using weights you're using your body rebounding off the floor it's like plyometric work to try and develop that yeah. conditioning so you'd move from like a, a model of all easy runs and then slowly maybe more move towards the pyramidal model or the polarized model or anything like that um, but in your experience have you moved at all between different models based on goals time of year that sort of thing um yeah definitely so i think yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. So, I think one of the key things to note is, so generally, in like a general preparation phase for most endurance athletes, polarized model works okay. But what might change is the actual distribution of that. So, it might actually be ninety or ninety-five percent easy, and you're only spending five or ten percent in the high intensity zone. So, I think for me, it's not so much the the distribution changes a fair bit. So, the other thing I would say is when you think about preparation for like a half marathon or a marathon, when you try and incorporate some pace-specific work, by virtue of doing that, you are going to start spending more time in that zone too. So I think in that instance, the overarching periodized plan does change the training intensity distribution. So I think you end up more, you end up either spending more time in zone three as you get closer to competition. So think of specific preparation phases or pre-competition phases. And then also when you start incorporating things like tempo sessions. So think of like two by 20 minute tempo runs at your half marathon pace. That That is a specific session whereby you are not wanting them to delve into their high intensity zone, but you're trying to build their comfortability and confidence with running at their half marathon pace. So you know that the compromise with that session is you are spending a lot of time in zone two. So the, the concern would be if you prescribe that and you see them shooting up into zone three heart rate, you'd be like, okay, that's not great because that's supposed to be prescribed at what is roughly their critical speed or just below. So you don't want to see that huge um, spike in heart rate. So you, you're spot on. Like it does shift based on, Training goal, training phase, and I think what you, the, the, I guess, the art of coaching and the art and science of coaching is being able to adapt the program to best accommodate those those changes in um, in schedule and plan. Yeah, that's really interesting what you said about maybe you're not if you'd be ninety five percent easy runs and then maybe ninety and you just progress it over time. It's a really interesting yep. concept and makes complete sense to me. Uh, it kind of eighty twenty is starting to remind me of you know the whole ten thousand hour rule, where yeah yeah, where it's like it's the mean value. Like uh, <laughs> I think the original research was on violinists, and they found that people that made expert level range between three thousand hours and seventeen thousand hours. So ten was the middle with the mean, uh, and <laughs> and eighty twenty is beginning to remind me of a similar thing. People straight away think oh, I need to try and get that twenty percent of the intense runnings, but where, at the beginning of your yeah. training year, it might be five percent. Maybe as you yeah, approach absolutely. a training or a, a competition, it might be thirty percent. So over the entire year, yeah. it averages out at twenty. Um, but you don't have to necessarily chase twenty all the time. You know, think about what's best for the athlete. Um, yeah, just, yep. I'm that seeing is, more and more parallels like that in training. People like numbers that they need to just shoot to, and you know that's what you do. That's the principle I follow. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. And and for people, so like if you are genuinely trying to target and hit twenty percent or in zone three, it's actually pretty hard to do. So like it's it's not as easy as people may think. So the whole 
concept of sticking to 80 20 is uh, yeah, it, it's a very challenging exercise. So, yeah, I, I certainly think that the fluctuation and variation in training intensity distribution across different phases is, is critically important because if you tried to stick to 20% of high intensity work all year round, that's a pretty significant stress as well, like especially if you're doing appreciable amounts of endurance training. How do you define each zone? So I've seen from your Instagram, you kind of have 90% of heart rate and above would be your zone three. Is it 90 to 80 would be zone two and 80 and below zone one? Is that correct? Yeah, that that's, that's correct. Most people, like I, I, everyone's familiar with training zones. So like they've been around for a long time. But I, I would say the traditional five zone model is the one that's obviously much more popular and much more regularly utilized by endurance athletes of all sports, basically. So one of the biggest issues though that was identified with the, the five zone model is that there was an argument against this use because they didn't say it, like the, the actual zones didn't traditionally demarcate the true physiological turn points in your body. So the argument for the three zone model was that as a general rule, we're looking for things like ventilatory threshold one and ventilatory threshold two, or what most people would probably refer to as aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. So there's some really good evidence to support that the three zone model does a great job of actually demarcating those specific thresholds. So 80% is a pretty good guide for your aerobic threshold, okay? 90% is a pretty good guide too for your anaerobic threshold. So by that, so essentially those two, in, those two thresholds basically delineate your, your intensity domains. So under 80%, low intensity, 80 to 90, moderate or threshold intensity, and above 90 is regarded as high intensity. So that's um, there's there's lots of good research on training. Once you look at training intensity distribution literature, you'll see that it's all underpinned by this research around the use of three zone models. The other thing I would say is that for me, it is just a much simpler process. So like when you're trying to quantify training intensity, instead of trying to integrate it in this complex five zone model, the three zone model just simplifies it. Like I think it makes it much easier for people to understand. And also when you're, you're quantifying your training, you're, you're kind of not having to worry about two additional zones that really don't tell you anything. So for me, it ticks like a number of boxes. And the fact that it's it's backed up by really strong scientific evidence um, certainly you know, adds credence to that and helps justify my investment and use of it. Would you ever do maybe some submaximal tests to find out a bit more information regarding the these thresholds so for example like you alluded to critical speed being like the threshold the second threshold between zones uh, three and two would you ever utilize anything like that to provide more information of where that might be and contribute to that model yeah so the whole concept of testing is a really interesting one so the, the one the, what i'll probably start with is when we think of the aerobic threshold for example because that's probably when you're without any testing equipment or any tests being completed, it's generally a, a slightly easy one to ascertain as to whether you're in it or you're crossed over it. So I guess one of the references I use is nasal breathing. So if you can run along and not breathe through your mouth, so you're breathing solely through your nose, that's generally a good indicator that you are below your aerobic threshold. So that's a great way to gauge your easy runs. So if you start... If you start running and you're like, geez, I can't maintain the the oxygen demand, 
through my nasal breathing, I've got to start breathing through my mouth. It's probably a good indication that you've you've crossed over into that moderate moderate threshold. So that's a that's a probably a little tip for people if they're trying to run easier. When we think about actual testing, so there's I guess two spheres. So I think most people would be familiar with the laboratory-based testing. So that is gold standard. When you think about laboratory-based testing, we think of things like uh, assessments of VO2 max or running economy. By virtue of doing those tests, we often get, and, and when they're overlaid with oxygen consumption data, we get a really good insight to an individual's actual ventilatory threshold data. That is amazingly insightful because what that tells us is at this heart rate and at this speed, they went over, you know, their, that's their ventilatory threshold one. And then at this heart rate and this speed, that's assigned their ventilatory threshold two. They become very clear goals which delineate your intensity domains. Oh, sorry, key, key markers, sorry, to, um, to, to identify your intensity domains. So that's the gold standard method. Now, the issue with that is it requires generally for most people to access a, a pretty significant outlay in cost. Um, and also for people to run it, it requires staffing, resourcing, expensive equipment. So it's not that practical. So for me, like I've come up with a model that is a bit more logistically uh, viable and cost-effective for for my athletes. And again, I'm not. It's certainly not without error. Like you know, it's, there's certainly um, there's certainly error inherent error in it because we don't have the ventilatory and oxygen consumption data at hand. But essentially, what I try and do with um, a lot of my endurance athletes is I use field-based tests. So there are a myriad different a myriad of different tests which are available, um, and they range from self-paced tests, like a, think of like a time trial. So might be a 2K time trial or incrementally paced tests. So think of things like the beep test or the yo-yo test or the University of Montreal track test. These tests can be used to provide us with two things. If we're using heart rate, a heart rate strap and we're collecting heart rate data, that should provide us with a really accurate maximum heart rate value. So that underpins our all of our heart rate zones. So we use that for that. The other thing it provides us with is a and again, we, we won't really cover it too much in this, but I, it underpins a lot of my conditioning application. It provides us with a maximal aerobic speed value. So that's a derivative of velocity at VO2 max. I use that as, our, as my objective intensity measure to prescribe really clearly objective interval training or conditioning prescription for my athletes. So those two things can be determined from the like field-based tests without having to go into the lab and there are a, quite a few estimates off that, but yeah, I've, I've, to be honest, I've found for most athletes, it does it does work quite well, and it does forego the need to to, to undertake laboratory based testing for most of them. Yeah, like testing's great, but in a lot of circumstances, it's probably unnecessary. <laughs> so if they can follow a, a guideline like you've provided, they're going to improve, and it's easy to follow. It's logistically much more feasible for them like it makes complete sense just to stick with that so no i I really really like your setup and maybe borrowing it shall we say um (laughs) i'd be interested to know how you set up then your high intensity interval training so for example like at the moment we've just talked about running uh, and you you know we know that when we're doing running training we're not going to just have okay if you run easy 
and then with your hard runs you're just going to run as hard as possible you know you know it's a little bit more thought out than that usually with certain intervals um how do you normally structure your interval training like how many intervals what's the rest periods um how long is uh each interval going to be uh be interesting your thoughts on that so that is a great question and that is so i have through the side business recorded a three-part workshop covering essentially all of this so that that went for four and a half hours (laughs) that went for four and a half hours so i certainly don't think we've got that much time but (laughs) essentially for me like when i get asked a lot like what's the best interval training session you can prescribe and overwhelmingly context is king so it depends on so many factors that have an impact. So, for example, sport, phase of the year, training history, training status, all of those things have a big impact. But as a general rule, when you think about, I think one important distinction to make is when we think about high-intensity interval training, the key characteristic of that and the application of it is that it needs to be objective. So, you need to reference or use an intensity measure to prescribe your interval training. So, for me... It is maximal aerobic speed. For other people that have got lab-based data, it might be velocity at VO2 max. So for example, it might be we're doing a long interval session and it might be at a two-to-one work-to-rest and it might be four sets of four minutes at 92.5% maximal aerobic speed with two minutes passive recovery. Okay, so that's, that's an example of how I would prescribe it. Now, across a group of, like let's say we do that with a, a group of triathletes or a group of footballers or soccer players, Across the the you know the spectrum of athletes, everyone or there'll be different groupings with different maximal aerobic speed values. So when you start prescribing in that manner, you can start individually tailoring the sessions to each individual's capacity. And the main benefit I associate with that is that you're inducing a consistent stimulus across the group. So that's one of the key characteristics. So when you're working one-on-one with an athlete, it's not that hard to prescribe something. The real complexity comes in when you're dealing with 40, 50, 60 football players or soccer players in a preseason and you're like, geez, how can I induce a consistent stimulus that I know will be effective across 60 players? So this method absolutely comes to comes into its own when you're dealing with those situations and circumstances. And I've been fortunate enough to work in elite programs, sub-elite programs. I've had to run a conditioning program before with up to 100 footballers. So I found it to be incredibly adaptable and implementable for for like a broad spectrum of settings. So whether it's one-on-one with an athlete, whether it's catering for 100 footballers or soccer players, it absolutely, the the philosophy and the the underpinning research holds holds me in great stead for that. So I don't know if I've answered your question directly, but there's, you know, I guess there's so many layers to it. And I think, yeah, I'd certainly, if people are interested in learning more about the application of objective interval training and just overarchingly conditioning, you know, I'd highly recommend that workshop. I think I recorded it last year and it's, you know, it's certainly been incredibly well received because it enables us to like, it enables me to like just absolutely delve into the intricacies of, um, of interval training and conditioning application across endurance and team sport athletes. Mm. Yeah, we'll definitely put the link in the show notes and try and encourage everyone to go there. I'm going to have a look at that as well. As like a final question, it's kind of linked to that. You know, you talked about how, okay, for each interval, you try and get them at a certain percentage of their mass and you use that as their gauge. So it isn't just like, I guess, into a certain heart rate. So they're not running constantly looking at their watch, you know, they, you know, try and, you know, try and aim for this. Okay. 
a bit more objective, I can really understand that. Have you ever used RPE to try a similar effect? And the reason I ask that is because, obviously, at the moment, this season it's all about developing strength and endurance simultaneously and mm-hmm. earlier you made a really interesting point as the reason why people often use heart rate data for triathlon is that you it can easily be done for each of the three disciplines for triathlon yep if we try and say improve powerlifting and triathlon at the same time um we've got a problem where you got you know you can't really just use heart rate data for uh, strength yep. training so with strength training we've been talking with uh, coach mike toucher uh, dr pack we talked a lot about uh, uses of rpe for developing strength yeah could that potentially also be used for the endurance side so that means you can have like an overview of rpe for both components i i i'm still figuring this out because with lifting you know you do a set of three and it's over what in within a minute if you do like a, yep. a tempo at four minutes, you know, your RPE at the beginning of that four minutes is going to be completely different to the RPE at the beginning, at the end of the four minutes. So it, yeah. it's, yep. it's more time for error. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. have you got any inf- uh, experience using RPE? Is it possible? Uh, all of those type of things. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely use RPE with, uh, within my programs that I prescribe. So one of the key char- characteristics for me is, when people are starting, just starting out and they're getting a feel for running to objective prescription, I, I like to complement it with RPE. So, for example, I use the Foster scale, which is, you know, zero to 10. And it's the one that people don't really understand where five is hard. <laughs> so, you know, you often say to people, oh, you know, how hard was that? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, pretty easy, five out of 10. I'm like, no, that's that's hard. So, it's uh, it requires a little bit of education. But for me, what I like about that is, when you're referencing the easy and hard runs, that people have to start thinking about it. So like when they finish an easy run, and, and the, I guess an important point to note, and you alluded to it, when you're expecting people to record or report an RPE, try and get the actual collection point consistent. So I would say within two to four minutes of finishing your run, think to yourself, okay, how hard was that? Like, you know, was that a two out of 10, three out of 10, seven out of 10? So at least then you're going, you're reflecting on the session you're not mm. thinking about it like when your tongue's hanging out of your head and you're like, geez, okay, this is this is bloody hard. So I think keep the reporting consistent, which I think most some people do really well. Other people are probably a little bit inconsistent and haphazard with that. So yeah, I certainly do use it. And I think it is complementary to the objective model because I think it's nice to get people to start to, you know, I don't want people just to like turn into a metronome and run just get too distracted by running to their watch. They've got to have a feel for how they're feeling as well because that that put, I rely on that feedback from them to say, well, hey, I've prescribed this. You know, you've you've done the session really well. Like, how much flex do you think is there? Is there how much room to move is there? Oh yeah, I felt like it was only a five out of ten. I think I could, I could work a bit harder. So that time, that kind of dialogue and information for me is invaluable because that tells me about their adaptation without having to retest all the time too. So I can start to, you know, I might say, okay, well, based on that, I'm going to improve, increase your intensity prescription by. 1.25% or 2.5%, whatever it is, let's see how we go. Okay, is that more in line with the RPA we want? Yes, it is. Perfect. Okay. You know, now I can be confident that their MAS value that we use at the back end has started to shift upwards. So I guess all of those things are factored in when I um, do the programming and have that sort of regular dialogue with with the athletes. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So you, you get them thinking like in the middle of their 
intervals. So is that so? If it's four minute interval, you around the two minute mark. Have a little think about what your perceived feeling is for this. So it does that kind of find a mean because if they're going to be find it hard at the end of the interval, easier at the beginning. That middle is the sweet spot. So let them have a little think of what it is then, and then they report back at the end. Would you say that's kind of like yeah? The strategy, well, I think or? um. Uh, Oh, I think for most people, I think, yeah, I think there's certainly people, I need people to reflect on how they're feeling during the efforts. Like when we're doing the hard stuff and the high intensity work, that's absolutely what you need to reflect on. So I would say it is, like I probably, to be honest, I, don't, I probably don't give people a prompt as to when to think about it during the session, but I often I often try to say, well, in this, in like when you, when you cluster all of the high intensity work together, how hard was that? And I sort of get them to reflect on that once they finish. Because I think what can happen is if you're getting people to constantly give you an RPE mid-session, I think often it can be a little bit inflated because they're like, oh, you know, I'm just absolutely working ridiculously hard here. But I think when they when people get through the session, finish the workload, they go, oh, okay, yeah. I think in the when I when I reflect on it, it was yeah, it was a seven out of ten, and that's what was prescribed. Because I think what you can get is you can get people that over um, over report RPEs. When you when you're constantly getting them done mid bout, I think mm. is what I find, and and then and again that's not particularly useful for me because when you analyze sessions, for example, people can report an RPE of let's say they're doing the four by four minute session, they report an RPE of eight in the in the second one, but then they still manage to finish the fourth one faster than all preceding three, so shows you that they you know probably not like it probably wasn't an eight really. At, session, at rep number two, so it's certainly it's certainly um, certainly a great complementary assessment of effort, and I, and I think it's certainly something. I, the thing the thing I like about it most is that I think it's good for it's a good it's good for people to have an appreciation of how they think they're working, because I think we can I can add lots of objectivity to that, but I think fundamentally when they're racing when they're doing events, they need like when you've started the race too fast and you haven't gone as prescribed. How do you pull that back using your feeling without not getting carried away? So they need to have a good appreciation for that as well. Yeah. No, really good, really good points. It's quite interesting to see your approach to it. Yeah. You know, hindsight is a beautiful thing. And if you're saying how good or how bad something is during it, and then you give them a bit of time to actually reflect on it, as ah, it wasn't that bad. You know, everyone's guilty yeah. of that, not just in training, but in all walks of life, aren't they? So yeah, uh, having an awareness of that is, yeah, quite important for. For it. but Nathan that was absolutely brilliant your YouTube lecture your your workshops I'll put them all in the show notes but if anyone wants to contact you or if you've got any other courses or anything like that you'd like to promote you know how can anyone get in contact um yeah thanks Phil so it's the conditioning consultant is the is the the business Instagram is the handles at the conditioning consultant so that's primarily where I provide education and resources for people to to refer to, um, and yeah, there's obviously li- links associated um, through the Instagram as well. But we also have a, a website too, which has a bit more information around program offerings and services, etc. And that's the theconditioningconsultant.com.au. Um, and then yeah, there's a, I guess there's you know the workshops, which uh, you know it's a three part series which covers testing, hit prescription, so like all the consideration of all the variables, and then finishes with conditioning periodization. So how do you actually periodize an entire season for, for an athlete? Um, and it has a particular bias towards 
team sport because I would say overwhelmingly my clientele, the followers I have on um, on Instagram at the moment would be either athletes or practitioners working within team sports settings. So that's kind of where I guess where it was more framed at, but certainly there's lots of take-homes for endurance athletes as well. So yeah, that, that's probably the two main avenues, mate. I, I sort of have a YouTube channel, but it's kind of more for um, – more for like some strength training exercises on there and stuff like that. But yeah, so it's the website and the, the Instagram is uh, are probably the two main things. And I guess, sorry, the other thing I should say is that the, I guess the, the side business was set up to provide more objectively prescribed running prescription for people. So there's two main options. Like there's an individualized running plan option, plan option which is certainly our most popular. So that obviously factors in all of the requirements for you and comes up with a program which tailored, which is tailored to your individual needs and your event, team sport athlete, endurance athlete, whatever it might be. But also I have some really effective running plans. So there's a couple. So there's 5K, 10K and also a team sport running plan as well. And they are more affordable and cheaper than the individualized running plan, but um, no less successful. We've had some amazing feedback and you know we keep track of it. We keep track of a lot of our athletes through Strava, which is um, which is cool, which is cool seeing people from all over the world undertaking the program and and um, sticking to it meticulously. So it's been um, a really rewarding exercise. Yeah, that's wicked. I'll have to check them all out. I'll definitely try and check out the high intensity interval training workshop. Um, no, might no, need no. to do a round two once I've uh, watched it because I'll probably have loads of questions I want to develop and delve into <laughs> yeah. it more. So that'll be great. But Nathan, thank you so much. Uh, I'll keep in touch over Instagram. Absolutely. No problems, Phil. And um, thank you for having me on. And, and hopefully I was able to provide some insight on training intensity distribution for yourself and the listeners. Mm, definitely. It definitely benefited me. So hopefully the listeners are going to absolutely love it. So thank you so much. 